Hi there, I'm Osher. Thanks for downloading the show. Uh, Sarah Wilson's on the show today. If you're listening to this, you may be aware that podcasts are free to listen to, but you may not be aware that they're not free to make. So I need to pay Andy and Rachel who helped me make this show. Andy, my audio producer, and Rachel, my show producer. So if you hear an ad right now, you're helping this show go to air. So thank you. If you don't hear an ad, you'll probably hear Sarah say something cool. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is uncertain. Life is uncomfortable. We have created an entire approach to life, which is about avoidance and cocooning from life itself. And my whole thesis is that has not served us. It's left us as an open wound with no ability to form a scab. We need to actually build that sort of resilient muscle. It's not even about doing sort of hard toil to kind of arrive at a spot where we can merely survive. Quite the opposite. When you put in this bit of work, when we become a big human who goes out to our edge and we do the risk of being flung around in the breeze, that's when we truly live life. That is New York Times bestselling author Sarah Wilson. And this is episode 353 of Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thank you so much for being here today on the show's uh, Sarah Wilson, New York Times bestselling author Sarah Wilson. I quit sugar Sarah Wilson. You know her. You can find out more about her, sarahwilson.com, Sarah with an H, dot com. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Glad you're here. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host, podcaster, uh, now a live streamer, uh, and an author from Sydney, Australia, I'm currently in uh, lockdown in Melbourne, 
And this show is called Better Than Yesterday, where each episode I try and help you make today better than yesterday. I'm helping me as well. You're just cheering it. Let's be honest, I'm selfish about the whole thing. I have these conversations to better myself and share that with you. Yeah, there we go. It's out there. <laughs> um, uh, no, you know, it, we hope it makes it all, we are all better together, hopefully. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. Everything you hear on this show from the episode one to this episode 353 and all the check-ins in between will hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Um, I'm here twice a week. Mondays I speak with the guest, Fridays I speak with you. And um, yeah, Sarah's on the show today. So thanks heaps for everybody um, who did come and support me on Twitch on the live stream. If you're new to the show, I've been on Twitch all week, which has been a lot of fun. Twitch.tv slash Osher Ginsburg. Just jump on there. Have a look around. I'm literally, I'm literally just riding my bike and talking to people, and I absolutely love it. I've been in lockdown. I've been in isolation. I, I just appreciate the connection, to be honest. Um, I appreciate learning a new skill. I appreciate the community that's there. I appreciate the supportiveness of everyone involved. And what's absolutely wild is I did a couple rides this week on Zwift, and um, I think my record, I had 10 people. 10 actual human beings in the Twitch chat, so in the chat room that's on Twitch, which is a live streaming platform, 10 people, real life human beings in the game with me. And all 10 of us were riding, 11 of us, including me, riding real bicycles, uh, powering these little pretend avatars up and down mountains, and we rode together. And yesterday I did 100 kilometers with someone I'd never met. But, you know, as a cyclist, it's a bit hard to try and find someone to come and do 100 Ks with you. But... There's like two guys that stuck with me for heaps of, it was great. It was absolutely great. And you can go and, you know, go check that out, twitch.tv slash Osher That's also where, if you like what I do, if this show brings you value, you could support me there. You could become a subscriber there or, or throw a couple of shekels my way, throw a tip my way if that helps, because that does, the rising tide floats all boats, certainly in the, uh, the rising tide of, of my bank balance. <laughs> certainly floats the boats of, of getting, uh, getting podcasts produced and things like that. Speaking of podcasts, there is a, uh, a new episode of Dad Pod out, a Father's Day special. If you want to go check that out, that'd be great. And also a big thanks to everyone that did send me an email this week. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, I have a thing for seeing where you're listening to the show. I just love to see what you do when you listen to podcasts. So personally, I like to work out or clean the house or ride a bike or, or uh, that's what I like to do. I know I like to be productive when I listen to podcasts. Um, usually when I'm doing things, uh, you know, and it, it, it inspires me to do gardening or work or train or, or, or whatever. When I'm, I love it. So anyway, Matt has been listening to the Friday episode about anxiety is like sand in your eyeball. Matt said his partner recently introduced him to the podcast and he's loving it. He's got his project bench, uh, which looks pretty good. It's a solid shed situation with a bit of, you know, like there's a lot of tools, a bit of power supply. There's a bit of glue. Oh, it looks fantastic. looks like a cracking way to spend a couple of hours in the shed there, Matt. Thank you so much for listening. Tracy sent a beautiful picture. I wish I could share it with you. My goodness. G'day, Osha. I'm in our canola crop on our farm, 800 kilometres southeast of Perth, West Australia. Um, the closest town is Esperance. I love discovering all the people, places and experience you do with your podcast. Also love the mask singer. Tracy, thank you so much. I wish I could say, show you this photograph. It's just canola as far as y'all can see. Just beautiful green and gold fields. Absolutely stunning. 
Oh, Tracy, thank you so much for sharing that. That's really cool. Uh, and this one came from James, which is super cool because James is uh, sending a photo of me on my bike. He's taken a photo of me live streaming on Twitch. And he said, it's not a positive, it's more of a twitchy, but seeing you on the bike motivated me for a high intensity interval class that I, I'd already been out for my hour walk. And then I thought, you know what, I'll hit a, do a hit class. Killer. James, mate, thank you so much. James is also in Melbourne in lockdown. So thanks everybody for all the support there. Really, really appreciate it. Gee, I'm glad I could talk to you today. It's been a big 36, 48, whatever many hours. Cause our quarantine's ending and, um, uh, we're trying to shoot this final episode of The Masked Singer and everything changes about every 15 minutes. And whew, there's a point yesterday where, uh, as you know, if you've been listening to the show for a little while, sometimes I can get a little disconnected from my emotional, physical reactions to my actual what's happening in my life. And so suddenly out of nowhere, I'll feel like I want to vomit or cry or whatever. And yesterday I wanted to vomit, laugh and cry all at the same time. And I'm just, I thought everything was fine. You know, I'm just doing what I'm doing, just sitting around. And all of a sudden my body starts reacting this way. It was super weird. But yeah, I'm glad I can talk to you. It's helping me calm down a bit. So let me tell you about my guest today. Sarah Wilson is a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote the book, I Quit Sugar, which I'm sure you've heard of, and the extraordinary book about anxiety, First We Make the Beast Beautiful. Uh, she's the former editor of Australian Cosmopolitan magazine, uh, she's a podcaster. She's a syndicated columnist. She's a TV host. She's an author of uh, many a cookbook. Uh, she's an incredibly influential writer. She has, I think, as many possessions as can fit in one roll-on and one carry-on bag. She's a fascinating human being. But Sarah is well and truly on a path that is trying to find the best way through this wildlife that we've got before us. Her new book is called This One Wild and Precious Life and covers a lot of similar aspects of the universe that me and my work have covered. We, uh, there's a lot of synergy in the work that we, we do and we do share. So I'm really grateful to have her on because she's far more hands-on. The, the book is a lot, it's all tied together with hiking, hiking around the world, hiking in many continents. And uh, she's an extraordinary extraordinary human being. She's got this idea that hiking is this kind of elegant, joyous path forward for us, this world kind of in despair. And that, you know, as we all kind of have this group anxiety and worry about how the fuck are we going to get out of this pandemic or this global warming situation or this idea that strongman politicians should be the way forward, you know, that deep in our hearts, we all kind of know it's probably not the right thing that we're doing, but we don't know what to do. And so this book, this one wild and precious life is kind of digs into that and pathways out of that angst and fear and, and stagnancy. Is that a word? It is now. I hope you enjoy this conversation. She's a magnificent human being. She's extraordinarily self-aware, has such a way with words. Of course she does. She's a jillionaire, you know, she's sold a jillion books. She's very good at what she does. And I'm just so happy that I can get her on the show the new book is called This One Wild and Precious Life. It's out now where you get your books. You can find out more about her at sarahwilson.com. Enjoy coming with me and Sarah, going to explore the edge. I hope you have a good afternoon or morning or day or night. 
firstly, I was just trying to figure out, and, and people should, just should know that occasionally I'll speak to people on my podcast who are complete strangers and we get to know each mm-hmm. other over the course of the show, which is really lovely. However, you might have been like fresh out of high school, I think, when we first met. Oh. And I'm trying to remember where it was. It might have been in Bondi somewhere. Really? At a dinner party somewhere. At fresh out of high school? Well, you were, no, maybe. I'm, I'm trying to be quite complimentary Tell about your age. It was probably I'm later. I'm 46. Yeah. We're the same age, yeah. so oh, I was trying to be. Compl- I was trying to give you a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you. I don't know whether that augurs well for me or not. In which direction we go, but yeah, I wonder whose dinner party it was in Bondi. Would have been with an ex-boyfriend that I'm still in contact with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I remember meeting you there, yonks ago. Yeah, I know. And um, then constantly being aware of when I'd start to see you. It was just before you'd started become quite public. Like you were writing at the time, mm. and you were quite a high-profile writer, but. It was right before things really exploded. And then I'd see you and go, oh, oh, yeah, I know her. Yeah. <laughs> and it was always lovely to see your... Um, Thank you. There. But obviously, you know, we are very different people. Should I even change my name? <laughs> From then, I mean, if I was to go back then, I was blonde, drinking. Yeah. Incredibly insecure, loud, terrified and frightened, mm. astonishingly frightened, and probably if it was before 2005, yet to be diagnosed. Yeah. When you look back at that Sarah, who, you know, how would you describe her? Me? Yeah. When I look back at that time, I remember seeing you sand running on Bondi Beach. I remember that sort of seeing you pop up, and my eyesight's really bad, so I assume that everybody else is as bad. And so I think we sort of probably didn't acknowledge each other or probably were in our own world of pain. But back then I was incredibly awkward. I still am. I have just got more comfortable with being awkward. I accept it now. Like I actually just preface everything with like I had to do a social event last night for the launch of my book. I stood in the corner and went, everyone, can you do introductions? Can you just kind of mingle over there? I'm just going to stand here awkwardly for a moment until I get the lay of the land. And my friends now know that that's kind of how I am. But I was startled. That would probably be the word that I would use. I was out of my depth. I've always been someone who yearns forward and I yearn forward to places where I'm not necessarily ready to go yet. But that's how I've operated. I sort of go to my edge and I talk about that in a book, as you know. Yes. And uh, I just yearn my way forward. I yearn to edges. I go out into the outer limbs of life and then I go, oh, shit, now what am I going to do? And um, I find a way. But if you meet me along the way in that process, I probably look very, very distracted, you know, because I am literally coping. Yeah, that, that period in my life, I was out of my depth. I became the editor of Cosmo at 29, having never read the magazine. And in the same sort of week or month, I'd met our common acquaintance, your friend, my ex-boyfriend, and I'd moved to a new city. I'm a country girl. I was, I was wearing flat shoes and all of a sudden I was the editor of Cosmo. I'd never owned a blow dryer. I'd never worn makeup. So, yeah, eyes wide open startled. But I sort of look back at it all and I'm like, I just wouldn't change it for the world. Like... Yeah. I am at my best when I'm fending and grasping and grappling and trying to find my way up and over things and that becomes the traction and it becomes the fibre to your life. So, yeah, I'm grateful for it. But, yeah, a bit like yourself, I come across people from that era going, I mean, I don't think I've changed that much actually. Yeah. I haven't changed my name, for instance. Um, no. I'm a very efficient person and Sarah Wilson works so well. I never have to spell it out. And um 
Yeah, I don't think I've changed. I'm still awkward. I'm still very much, I work on principle. You know, I'm still trying to work it out. Yeah, but you are far more aware Mm. of all these things and you have various subroutines of coping strategies that you can drop into exactly as you described with your event last night that you just know, oh, this is just a thing and it's this thing and then it will be gone. But for right now, this is what it's happening and don't worry about it. It's just a thing. It'll be gone in 10 minutes. It'll be all right. Well, from first we make the beast beautiful, I have a thing where I say just do anxiety once because most anxiety comes from being anxious about being anxious about being anxious. And when we're younger, we get anxious about our anxiety. We get anxious that we should somehow be coping better. We should know more. We should have got the guide to life. And I think one of the things about getting older is you realise that nobody knows what they're doing. So I clocked onto this idea of what if I just did anxiety once? What if I just do the anxiety? All right, we're going to go through this. Here we go. And I have a little conversation with myself. And I think getting older is about accepting some of the things that you do and then not fretting quite as much. It's just owning it, sitting in it. And there's been so much dialogue, you know, over the last couple of years about vulnerability and what a gift that is to the others around you is when you can actually just say, I'm in this space. And, you know, I had half a glass of wine and then I was okay. And my friends sort of came up to me and they were, they filled in all the gaps you know, they filled in all of that and then I was able to sort of re-enter the scene, you know. Yeah. And it's just settling. I mean, I think the first We Make the Beast Beautiful book was a, a journey inside myself and it was a very self-absorbed journey but it was necessary and I developed a lot of strength and, and arrival through it. This next book, This One Wild and Precious Life, it actually sees me move into adulthood, which ultimately is a journey that our generation fails to do on a regular basis. Yeah, I do very much want to get to that part, but I would oh, like... sorry, I'm jumping ahead, as I did warn you. <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. I just really applaud your ability to verbalise what so many... I, I like, you know, I do talk about this a bit. You know, one of the big symptoms of alcoholism is convincing you it doesn't exist. And then one of the big symptoms of uh, anxiety is convincing you that you're the only person that has this. It's like, no, you're not a special snowflake. Fucking everybody's got this yeah. to varying degrees. And hearing you describe it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly. It was precisely. Yeah. Yes, ex- precisely how I felt. Like, I probably did recognize you on the sand, but I was just too fucking terrified to say hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is bananas for any rational person to understand, but just rising to bring myself out of myself enough to have that human connection on that in the morning, yeah. you know, probably pre-coffee, it was just like, that's just too much. Yeah. Head down, yeah. just jog. Yeah. No, that's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. I, I use my my bad eyesight as a little bit of an excuse because we had we set up a whole of seductive layers right to be uh, able yeah. to cope and especially if you're in the public eye you those seductive layers are actually encouraged and i say this quite often is that anxiety and being intense to a certain extent is glorified to a certain extent mm. within certain contexts and so we can sometimes the highly functional anxious amongst us we can become very seductive and we can stay in that place because it serves us you know mm. and so at some point you've got to choose do i want to live a constricted life like this or do I want to expand? And I I use this in my next book is do I want to be right or do I want to love, you know, and that's a a phrase that I have, I have to remind myself, you know, every single day. I almost need to put it on the inside of my glasses on a post-it note, right or love, you know. There's a a version, I I remember hearing a therapist at one point tell me, look, do you want to be right or do you want to stay married? (laughs) 
Yeah, same, 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 you know. Yeah. Same, 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 same. Yeah. In the first book, the, not the first book, the book we've been describing, yes. First Remake the Beast Beautiful, it would be good to, to kind of get this out as a groundwork before we talk about the, the next book. You, you talk about this concept of connection mm. in First Remake the Beast Beautiful. Could you talk a little bit about connection and the opposite? disconnection. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that plays into the situation that we find ourselves in? Yeah, I mean, I speak about it more in the second book, but I guess in the first book, the disconnect is the connection with ourselves and with an understanding of anxiety as something that is, is something that, well, as the title suggests, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, we live in a culture where it has been deemed problematic as something that exists out there that, you know, is a chemical imbalance that needs to be fixed. And we have a culture where we fix everything. We have to eradicate and fix things. And I just think that the reason why I set off to write first, we make the beast beautiful, and that was, you know, that came out a few years ago now, and it took seven years to write. So I was I was working on that when we were ignoring each other sand running in Bondi years ago, right? Fabulous. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking about. It was churning in my head at the time. I wrote it because I felt so alone in the discourse, in a decent discourse that went beyond the medical model, didn't ignore the medical model, but went into the philosophy, the spirituality of it all. We have lost the connection of seeing anxiety as a evolutionary quirk at a biological level but a spiritual necessity if you look at it through that lens it has always existed as something that is is necessary to keep the human endeavor moving forward so shamans spiritual leaders wartime leaders were more often than not and when i say more often than not we're talking 70 to 90 percent of wartime leaders were bipolar you know, um, 70% wow. of scientists and poets at various times in history have been deemed to be bipolar. And up until reasonably recently, and bear in mind, anxiety only entered the DSM, which is the main diagnostic tool that we use in Australia and the US and to a lesser extent the UK. Anxiety only entered that diagnostic manual as a disorder in 1980, one year after the first anti-anxiety drug was invented. I mean, coincidence much? I don't know. So before that, of course, we got anxious, but there was a different kind of discourse around it. And Mm. you could identify the moment when it all shifted, but certainly 100 years ago, 200 years ago and beyond, there was a certain amount of firstly acceptance but also respect for those who had these quirks. So Charles Darwin, Beethoven, Van Gogh, all these incredible thinkers and artists, you know, that we kind of build our society, our sense of what it is to be human from, had these conditions. Now, what often happens is we then tend to glorify these things and there's this really weird tension that we face in our culture. And I've witnessed this, and you might have as well, in your journey with anxiety. When I was first diagnosed in, well, 13, but then was put onto medication in the very early days. I was one of the first cohort to go through Prozac. And I was 17, 18 at the time, and it was to treat obsessive compulsive disorder. And you went through this stigmatization, but then not long after, it became a kind of badge of honor. And this is something that we've also got to be careful of. So there's this weird dialogue that we have around it. And really, it doesn't tick any of the boxes of acceptance and also working with it, carrying it as a responsibility, but also seeing it as a gift, a superpower, that when you actually sit with it and you're responsible with it. So 
this is not about descending it into going, oh, I've got depression or I've got bipolar. I just, you know, I've just got to go a bit crazy sometimes. No, that's not what it's about. There is also a responsibility that comes with it. So we have just lost that dialogue. We've lost that natural understanding of this aspect of human nature. That there is agency. Yes, you have this. If you, if you swap out, you know, we have similar diagnoses. Yeah. If you swap out obsessive compulsive disorder, you swap out anxiety to type 1 diabetes. Mm. You know, you are born with it. Yeah. This is how your body just processes things differently. You have to be careful about how you eat it. It makes people real uncomfortable if you neck a whole dozen donuts because people know that's not good. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. But if you're like, oh, no, no, I'm just going to go for a run because I had a little thing earlier and I need to, you know, mind my sugar. Yeah. Don't worry, I'll be right back. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's like, oh, cool. He's got this. Yeah. He's right. We don't have to worry about him. He's got this thing. He's a totally normal human being. He just has to do a little bit extra to manage himself. But for some reason, because it's in our brains, you know, we allow, like, you, we wouldn't allow a type 1 diabetes person to play the victim. We'd be like, no, come on. Yeah. You've got to take responsibility. You've got to live. Yeah. You know, but with people who have this in their brains, like, oh, it's all right. He doesn't like to leave the house much. Just leave him alone. We let him play the victim. In Beast, you know? yeah, in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, I talk about, so after doing this big G up, hey, this shit can be used as a superpower, right? Yeah. I then go, but hang on, I liken it to having to carry a shallow bowl of water around for the rest of your life when you've got a serious diagnosis. You've got to carry it around and you've got to remain steady. Your responsibility is to keep steady. So it includes not having sugar highs. It includes not getting overexcited and allowing that, again, to use another metaphor that from the book, um, allowing your kite string to unwind out too far. Let it fly, <laughs> but keep that string taut right? So that's, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but the shallow bowl of water, you've got to keep yourself sturdy and steady. It is your responsibility because you know what? It is unfair if you walk around sloshing your water all over everybody. And what's more, it's exhausting having to go back to the source to fill back up again, which anyone who's got a condition like you and I have, we know that exhaustion. It's like, here we go again. I'm going to have to get back on track and it's going to take another couple of weeks. But if we do take on the responsibility of being a steady human, an adult steady human, the price of that is not too high. In fact, the payoff is incredible because you then go and tick a whole heap of other boxes like, and I jump ahead here, becoming an adult, becoming yes. a sturdy, good, decent human being that's got their shit together that people want to be around. You then become a leader and it might be a leader in your school group. It might be a leader in whatever format you're involved in. But it actually just kills a whole, I hate this phrase actually, kills a whole of birds in one stone, right? But the benefits are untold. And I, I think I've watched you over the years as you've done the work on yourself and got yourself steady and done the stuff, the hard stuff, the payoffs are exponential. They're not linear. They're not, it's not a flat line. They're exponential. And same with me. My health, yeah. my mindset, my energy, my love, my ability to contribute has just gone up and up and up and up and up. The sturdier I've got. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I love the shallow bowl of water because when you talk about, I'm going to have to refill this bowl of water, eventually the people you love are like, oh man, I'm fucking sick of filling yeah. this back up for you. Yeah. You're going to have to do this by yourself. And then, you know, I can speak from experience, you find yourself uh, a very difficult person to be in a romantic relationship with. Oh, yeah, I hear. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so, and so uh, it can get pretty lonely. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you've really got to sort it out, man, because you can't rely on other people to do it because it's unsustainable to ask people to keep doing that. Mm. You talk about walking with a shallow bowl of water. There's an awful, there's an awful lot of walking in this one wild and precious life the, the new mm-hmm. book a lot a lot a lot a lot of hiking in a time when I'm in Victoria right now I'm in mandatory isolation um, there was a, a COVID outbreak on our set and uh, I've been deemed a close contact so I can't go anywhere for 14 days yep. um, there's another test on day 11 I don't know what day I'm in right now but yep. I've already had one test it was negative but the disease can take up to two weeks to yeah. show up yeah so this is where I am yeah. <laughs> speaking to you. With your microphone as your best friend. Uh, mm-hmm. well, there's a lot of like really long and wonderful FaceTimes with yes. the kids and my wife. We're not necessarily talking. It's just they're, they're there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, love, it's really lovely. And I'm training my balls off because I know that it is only in moving my body do I release the hormones my body needs to shift mood states. Yeah. And it puts that lube in my brain that allows me to go, okay, you're feeling a little shit. Let's think about feeling a little shit. Okay, now I'm observing feeling a little shit. Okay, how can I feel a bit better? And then you're yeah. able to shift gears. If I don't do that movement, it's very hard. A lot of moving in your book, a lot of walking. Did you count the miles? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not a stunt book. It's not a, oh, I'm going to walk a jillion miles and write a book about no. it. It's not a stunt no. book. It's just, but well, the walking's a part of the process. Um, tell me about what it is. What do you get out of out of hiking? done it all my life and I've had the impetus just to move. It's in my bones. It's what I've always had to do. As a kid, I just had to move and I grew up in the country. So that's just what we did. And I've always managed my anxiety through going out into nature and just moving, climbing trees. I did downhill mountain bike racing for years, BMX racing. I have to just be outdoors engaged in nature. So I knew intuitively that that was the case. And what actually prompted me to write this book was my despair around where humanity was heading. So obviously I did the inward journey and, you know, sort of got myself sturdy with my bowl of water and then went, right, now it's time to go out into the world and be of service. And that's what I was feeling. I felt that that was really all my life. That's kind of what I felt. So heading out, I realized the entire world was in a state of agitated despair. And we were not connected, if we bring that back in, to what matters to us. And that was breaking my heart and particularly around the climate crisis. So I'd been a climate activist pretty much all my life in one form or another. And I was just seeing the message wasn't getting through. The bushfires hit And that was even more stark and worrying because we all thought that that would be our wake up call. And it didn't hit home. And in fact, climate denialism increased. Um, There was an Ipsos poll that showed that the fragmentation politically around climate actually increased during that time. So I was in the middle of writing this book and 
the way that I coped, every time that I got stuck, I did what I always do and I just went out and hiked in nature. The book follows me in a sort of three-year period where I hike around the world and I've reduced all my possessions down to one sort of 15-kilo carry-on bag and so that's just what I did. And then I realised, my goodness, this is actually the through line. This is actually how we process. So I went back and dug through the science. Um, There's 40,000 plus studies on the benefits of being in nature and moving. The Japanese predominantly have led those studies. We call it a forest bath. There's a word for it, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Forest bathing. Exactly. And it's part of the health policies there and the health insurance. They also work in and around the benefits of, of going out there. Finland does the same. South Korea does the same. In America, there's recognition of it um, amongst corporates, but also amongst certain health insurance policies that there is benefits to it. So I went back and dug around it. I went and followed in the footsteps of Nietzsche, who talked about the fact that there is no good thought that has ever existed without walking. And through Switzerland, I then, you know, hiked in the footsteps of Wordsworth in the north of England, who also hiked out his anxiety and his thinking processes. So it kind of, there's two things. It happened organically as I tried to process my despair, my pain, my overwhelm around what was happening in the world. And then it was also a discovery. I realised this was the path forward. So it wasn't like one of those kind of, you know, those books that I think they were really in around about five, six years ago where people would go out and set a challenge and then write a blog series about it and then turn it into a book. Yeah, it wasn't the, that. The, the stunt book. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't it. It's just that this is what happened for me and then in the mm. process I realised there's legitimate science and legacy here. All right, finally I get why this works. And then it enabled me to, to put my marketing hat on from years of working in women's magazines. It also sexified my takedown of the neoliberal model. <laughs> you know? How was I going to make that palatable to my readers? You know? yeah. And my biggest bookseller is Big W. You know? So we're talking just average Australians who might not even mm. know what neoliberal liberalism means or Mm. these thoughts might not have occurred to them so the walking through line really helped with that but yeah and in the process it enabled me to arrive at a very elegant simple beautiful joyous self to the clusterfuck that is happening on this planet today we tend to i should like look at the climate crisis the covid stuff that's going on isolation, political fragmentation, what's happening over in the US, the racial inequalities, you know, children's anxiety. We're looking at all these things as, oh, my God, there is so much to take in and and if I try to address this, what happens over here? My argument in the book is that it's all the same stuff and so if we address it as the one thing with the one solution, and I'm not pretending just to have a silver bullet because it takes work what I suggest because I don't want to give away the ending um, or my solution but it just makes sense it really makes sense intuitive sense scientific sense spiritual sense we've complicated things too much so walking certainly gets us a long way there there's a real a real sense and, and it, it's kind of weird when you have to start considering it because yes indeed we are in a, a <laughs> unfortunately past the point of if we act we can avoid it Mm -hmm. uh, with our our climate situation Mm -hmm. all we can do now is adapt which is horrifying Mm. and awful and sad and yet there's great possibility in that adaptation there is great possibility and 
ability to reshape, reframe, and perhaps question, like, is this really? Do I really want to be eating frozen berries from Chile? Mm. Do I have to have them? You know? <laughs> like, yeah. You know, there's an opportunity for us to kind of think about these systems that we have never questioned, you know? Like, certainly when you start talking about climate stuff, I'd imagine a lot of the reactions, a lot of the denialism comes from a sense of ego and guilt of like, oh, I'm suddenly, you're blaming me because I know deep down. It's like when I told people I'm vegan, they get angry. Mm. They're not angry at me. They're angry because deep down in their heart, they know that killing a sentient being comes with a cost. And if they're not willing to face looking an animal in the eye, ending its life, slaughtering Mm. it, cutting it to pieces and cooking and eating it, that's a pain that they want to avoid and offset. Yeah, there's about 15 things you've brought up there that I just like (laughs) want to tap into because they're, they're all, well, let's talk about facing tough things, right? We have reached a point of development in our culture where we have lost the ability to do moral struggle to wrestle with difficult moral issues. And as you say, we tend to run from them or get angry, right, at the person who holds the mirror up to us, the reminder to us, you know. So we actually have lost the tools. We used to have what I call in the book moral guardrails, the church, trade unions. You know, if we were working more than nine to five, there was a trade union or human resource department that would, you know, ensure that our rights were satisfied, et cetera, et cetera. Now we're expected to be on 24-7 and nobody's really policing it and we really don't know do we observe a Sabbath because we used to have a church leader Mm. instill that. And then difficult moral decisions that we faced as a culture, they were able to be discussed at a sort of languid pace. We used to watch the news once a day and, you know, I grew up with two TV channels. So, you know, you had a news source and there was a responsibility to to discuss these things fully. And so we were able to actually work our way through those kinds of puzzles. Now we are just hit with them with no time, no psychic space and no leadership or structures that guide us. And I use the quote from a beautiful writer in the New York Times, David Brooks, who says that the kind of stuff that we've got to deal with morally, not even Nietzsche could work his way through this stuff, right? And we've got to get on with raising children, putting dinner on the table, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a gig that's just too hard. So there's that aspect of things that, you know, I think we don't discuss and we don't acknowledge. Now, I'm just trying to backtrack on all the other things. I was counting all these different um, aspects. I was basically, I guess I was trying to talk about we find ourselves suddenly, when you do pick up your book, if you've not considered it before, you will find yourself suddenly like, oh, my God, I'm complicit in all these systems. I'm, you talk about oh, neoliberalism. Yes. Yes. Right? If you're a young person, uh, you know, you've got young kids and you pick up a book in Big W and suddenly you're faced with neoliberalism and you've got a trolley full of clothes for your children that cost 20 bucks but they were made in China, mm-hmm. you're suddenly like, oh, fuck, I'm in it. I'm part of all of it. Yep. Ah, well, it's, that can be really hard. It's super hard. And one of the things I compare, I had a sort of a, a comparison that I bring up several times in the book. A lot of people are talking about the fact that we feel at war. We feel at war, but unlike World War II, the most recent example of a war, you know, a world catastrophe, I suppose, there's no common identifiable enemy. So mm. um, most of the world was able to go, the Nazis, you know, and so we rallied around that. And so governments were able to do all kinds of things, right? In the US, they switched from a consumer economy to a wartime economy in two weeks. And there were people paying, the highest tax rate was 94%. And everyone just did it because there was a common cause and a common enemy. What we face today with the climate crisis is that we are 
in the crisis. And, and Timothy Merton wrote a book and he referred to these as hyperobjects. A hyperobject is a problem that's so vast. We are in the middle of it. We can't get the perspective of pulling back and seeing what's going on. We are complicit. We are both the victim and the perpetrator. And that doesn't happen too often. And so there's nobody that can guide us because we're all in it. The hypocrisy is just everywhere. You know, as you say, you might be a vegan, but you're eating your stuff out of a plastic bag, you know, is such a hard thing to navigate. So I think that that's definitely, definitely adding to the overwhelm. Yeah. I couldn't bring myself, I read an essay about that book, but I couldn't bring myself to actually read that book. The hyper objects. Yeah. Terrifying because it brings in all the AI stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. I read like a 10,000 word essay on it and that was enough to kind of leave me. I mourned for about 10 days. Yes. You know? Yeah. It was fucking heavy. And I'm like, and then they sent me the book. I'm like, I cannot read this. Yeah. Our baby's just been born. I know it's real. I know it's true. I accept it. I just can't look at it that closely right now. Yeah. So talk to me about, you know, you, you walked in wonderful parts of the world, you know, mm. North America and uh, the north of England and Japan. And Jordan, Crete. Jordan, yeah. Joshua Tree through Central the Mediterranean. Australia. Glorious. Yeah. It is overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. It's to the point where it's so big, I don't know where to start. And you do bring up a really fascinating place. Like, how do you move from that place? And you talk about reframing. Well, well, firstly, you talk about, you know, trying to build, and I'm I'm paraphrasing a little here, you know, kind of building your resilience a bit. Mm -hmm. And you you dropped it earlier. You talked about finding the edge. And, you know, I talk a lot about that our brains work the same as our bodies. If we're training, we lift a slightly heavier weight. Mm -hmm. It might be really hard at first and we think we can't do 10 reps. We might even get to eight. Next time we go to the gym next week, we can do nine. The next week we can go to 10 because your body has adapted to the stress that you're putting it under. And similarly, mentally, by finding that edge and pushing into it, we actually increase our ability to deal with it. Can you talk a little bit about that, about what it takes to face the things that just overwhelm you and frighten you? Yeah. Well, I mentioned it just a little moment ago that we are a generation who have almost lost our ability to deal with discomfort. We used to have these moral guardrails that made it easier to guide us through things. As the world's become more intense and overwhelming and we've had less guidance, less sort of structures that have taken those decisions out of our hands so that we can get on with living a good life and we question these guardrails and we challenge them. But, you know, in the main, they're there to sort of assist us so that we don't get overwhelmed. What has taken its place is this kind of mass cocooning. So I actually pull apart a whole bunch of things that happen in our culture today at the beginning of the book. And effectively what they do is they cocoon us from our edge. They cocoon us from discomfort, from not knowing, from uncertainty. So a prime example is technology. So I think I make the point in the book where you and I grew up in an era where you would make an arrangement to meet on the second Tuesday of the school holidays under the clock at the bus interchange and you just had to trust that your mate would turn up and if they didn't, you didn't know if they were going to be five minutes, 45 minutes, three hours late or if they'd died, you know, and you probably wouldn't find out until first period back when school resumes again, you know. We lived in a state of uncertainty. We lived having to delay gratification constantly. There was no buying online. You had to save up and then go to the shops and quite often we'd lay by instead of doing afterpay. I think that's the best kind of analogy. We used to do lay by where we would 
put a little bit of money yeah. down and uh, we wouldn't get the product until we'd paid it all off. Whereas yeah. Afterpay, it's the complete flip of that. So we've got all these mechanisms that stop us from actually living in any kind of discomfort. We don't even have to wonder how long our takeaway pizza is going to take because we can watch the little orb on our phone as it works its way through the suburbs to our house where we don't even have to get off the couch. It arrives and we don't have to think, we don't have to doubt, we don't have to wonder. Mm. We've got Google where we can go and look up everything straight away. We don't have to sit in the discomfort of not knowing, of being uncertain ever. And what price are we paying for that? Well, we've lost our resilience We've lost our ability to sit in discomfort. And I said this, I didn't address to the National Press Club at the end of last year, addressing anxiety amongst children. And there's this phraseology that says there's an anxiety epidemic. And of course, we are talking about this a lot at the moment throughout COVID and the effect of it on, on children and, and teenagers going forward. And my argument is that the more serious epidemic that we should be looking at is a epidemic of lack of resilience. So children in particular have been cocooned from life and what that means is when real shit hits the fan which it does because life is uncertain and it's getting more uncertain so if we're going to talk about hyper objects and black swans you know this terminology that says that we've got bigger and scarier and more uncertain things coming our way like COVID is one example we don't even know where it comes from we don't know how to fix it can you believe it in 2020 when we can send people to the moon we don't know how to work out where a virus came from we don't know how to stop a pandemic the best thing we've come up with is masks face masks flimsy little cloth masks which they were using during the spanish flu in 1918 we haven't come up with anything better than that so life is uncertain life is uncomfortable life is all about life happens at the edge now if we've made our resilience muscle flaccid to use your terminology, you know, or your analogy, we are really ill-equipped. So throughout the book, I suppose in many ways, the journey is about building up that resilience muscle. And so I do a bunch of techniques and that take us to edges that you might not identify as an edge necessarily. So for instance, I've got a chapter on becoming a soul nerd, right? You know, and I've got a chapter on getting spiritually heavy, you know, not taking a spiritually light, fluffy unicorns and rainbows and manifest your day kind of stuff, but actually doing what spirituality has always been about, which is the grunt work, the sacrifice. Mm. The contemplation and acceptance of death. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we have avoided, we have created a, an entire approach to life, which is about avoidance and cocooning from life itself. Mm. And my whole thesis is that has not served us that has made us it's left us as an open wound with no ability to form a scab right that i think sums up how many of us are feeling so we need to actually build that sort of resilient muscle that also it's not even about doing sort of hard toil to kind of arrive at a spot where we can merely survive quite the opposite and it's a bit like what i do with first we make the beast beautiful and we were just talking about a moment ago when you put in this bit of work to become a human, a big human, and I talk about this in the book, a big human as opposed to a small human that puts emoticons on things and ignores text messages and hopes that people don't bother them for anything. When we become a big human who goes out to our edge and we do the risk of being flung around in the breeze, that's when we truly live life. Now, the ultimate sort of irony, the path, you mentioned before that things are not looking good that, in fact, this might be a process of adaptation 
my kind of thoughts around that, and I had to go through a lot of grief, Osha, like to sort of come to terms with that. And I'm sure you and many of the listeners have as well, especially those of you with children, the grief that your children won't necessarily get to experience the animals that are in their picture books, the grief of the plans that you had for them and yourselves, even just travel. We may never have travel again, right? We may not be able to go and see the world for a long, long time. So there's a whole bunch of things going on around that. However, the upshot of all of this is I feel that the process of saving this one wild and precious life will actually lift us to the kind of humans we truly know ourselves to be and have denied ourselves for so long. We have been operating small and scared and avoidant and ascetic and flaccid and we know it. We are not being our best selves. We have all these self-help books going on, rah, 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 be your best self, but we're not living it truly from our heart and our souls. Yeah. Yeah, we're jogging on the beach looking at the sand trying to avoid. Eggs. Yes, exactly. What a perfect metaphor, right? Trying to avoid that connection. And it's fascinating what you what you just said is something that I remember early in my journey of sobriety. There's a person whom I got had the extraordinary fortune to have gotten sober in uh, Los Angeles of all places. Yeah. And so, you know, this Australian idea of sobriety is very boring person who doesn't achieve anything and is, you know, is a loser because they had to stop drinking. Yeah. The Los Angeles version of sobriety is like fucking legend who got his shit together yep. and achieved everything and kicked the doors in and is now a mogul. Yeah. And so yeah. I had the chance and the extraordinary gift of being around people who had done exactly that. Who had It's just a reframing of what drinking is. And I know drinking was the thing that fucked you up, not the thing that was fun and awesome. Yeah. And I remember this person saying to me, and I wrote it down, I just had a look at it just then, that apathy is fear, laziness is fear, sitting at home is fear. Mm-hmm. If I keep it small, then I'm not safe. If I make it big, I become safe and powerful. And he's exactly right. And it's exactly what you're saying just then. Mm. It's exactly what you're saying. It's if you play big, it's actually far more, and you're in far more control because then you are making decisions around, around where the edge goes. If you are constantly backing away from the things that frighten you, those things are the ones that have control over you. Yep. And it just gets worse and 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 worse. You did talk a bit about building that resilience. And I adored the little part where you talked about the Dutch because I've spent <laughs> a fair amount of time in the Netherlands. I went to business school there and I count some Dutchies among some of my best friends and they are a very different culture of human yeah. that I ad- adore. Mm. They come up a few <laughs> times in the book. Like they've got a, you know, there's a few things, but I think the one that you're referring to, I'll, I'll mention one. One is like when I talk about loneliness, um, the Dutch have supermarkets that have an aisle, especially for people who want to have a chat. So, you know, this is the chat aisle for lonely people, right? Like let's fix this problem. Everyone goes to a supermarket. We'll put somebody in charge of the queue where people can just have a chat to the checkout chick, you know, as they're putting their toilet paper through. I love it. But I think what you're referring to is, and it speaks to that notion of resilience and it really exemplifies what's happened to our culture and the Dutch the Dutch do it differently, as I say. So we've got these children who've become bubble children, right, and we won't let them walk to school on their own, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Dutch have this tradition, and I read about it in New York Times, and I remember the journalist who was writing it was clearly horrified, an American journalist mm. who'd gone to Holland to actually witness this, and it's called dropping, and it's kind of the equivalent of scouts, right? So there's this kind of tradition, all kids do it. I don't know if you came across it when you were there, but parents go and drop their kids off into the middle of, now I was going to say the wilderness. I don't know that 
the Netherlands has too much wilderness. But let's just... I've, I've cycled a fair bit there. They have these bits of forest that are a long way from anywhere. All right. You know, it's like a good day's walk yeah. from a road. Yeah, good. Know. Okay, so it does exist. It's flat, albeit flat. So these kids get dropped in the middle of nowhere and the whole deal is that these kids have got to work their way home over the course of a weekend. The quotes in the interview are just gold, right? You can imagine this really um, horrified American journalist getting these quotes from these Dutch parents who go, oh, yeah, well, we just go home and watch television. And they're like, were you worried? Well, we just figure as long as they don't die, they'll just work it out. You know, they'll work it. It should be fine. And it's just that sums up how we grew up, right? You know, the whole, yeah. you know, we like, we know we're old when we talk about going out to play and you had to come home when the lights went on in the street, you know. Oh, yeah. We yeah, all yeah, talk yeah. About, about that. But there's so much to be said for it. And we've lost the resilience. You lose the resilience pretty fast because we've become cocooned little bubble humans who get yeah. outraged when we've got to sit on a call center line for more than 10 minutes we get you know stroppy when they finally pick up the phone whereas we used to have to wait forever for anything you know i did half a law degree without the internet and without a computer and using the dewey system in in libraries where you had to actually go and look everything up and wait for the book to come back two weeks later when somebody returned it late so i think that this idea that there's other countries around the world that are instigating some of this stuff and in fact scandinavia is particularly good some of the schools over there and their prison system the prison systems are fascinating i know absolutely fascinating mm. i find that partic- I particularly like when you look at the recidivism rates here in, in australia where you know we've got to lock them up and put them away i don't care where just away yeah. And essentially you're sending them to criminal school. Yes, exactly. Uh, giving them absolutely zero chance of ever reintegrating in society. And, I actually, you know, I've, I've spoken to a bloke on the show who talked about, you know, and then on the other side you, you're sent out to a halfway house which is full of people who are probably using again for the first time since they got out. Like, yep. And you're right in the com- drop right back in the community that you got taken out of, which is full of criminality and temptation and whatever. It's like... How the fuck are you going to expect anyone to do anything different? And that's a classic case of how we've lost sight of what matters. And this is, I think, people listening would relate to this in the workplace, maybe even in your discussions with your family. We have lost sight of what matters. What's the outcome we want? We want a kinder society. We want a society Mm. where people don't fall into the trap of committing crime to get by. We want people to actually get rehabilitated and come back and get jobs and contribute back mm. into society. And, yeah. you know, I think it's in Denmark, their prison system, or maybe it's Norway, the rate of people coming out and reoffending is really low. The rate of people coming yeah. out and getting a job is super high. And it turns out that the cost of the prison system is way, way lower, even though in these prisons these people are treated like full respected human beings there's recreation there's health things there's libraries they have to work to build the stuff that they have you know the short version is like some some of these prisons uh uh, i think sweden was the one that i heard about there's no fences it's miles away so if you want and and sweden you can't walk anywhere because you will die from cold so that helps but the the prison itself is prison i'm using the inverted fingers it's a microcosm of society and like this is how a functional you may have grown up however you grew up you know, you may not have had a, a good role model, but here's how the society 
that we're going to put you back into is working. Here's the decision-making process. Here's a leadership structure. Here's a command yep. chain of command. Here's instigation. Here is decision. Here is consequence. And here is serving a community. And doesn't you know? Doesn't this feel interesting when you serve your community? And that's basically getting people in that routine. So when they go out, they're like, "Oh, this is just like it was before yeah. when I had a, uni- a uniform on." Well, they don't think they even wear uniforms, and it, it's the same. Yep. And, and it's fascinating. It's a microcosm of what's actually happening for the rest of us, if you think about it. Yep. Right? We have been trapped. And I refer to capitalism as a cult. And if you make the, the parallels are stark, you know, when I say it to people, they think, oh my God, what are you about to tell me? But if you think about it, we have been trapped in this kind of setup where we've come to believe that earning money and accumulating money to go and buy stuff that we actually don't need, that corporates tell us we need, whether it's a particular kind of handbag, a particular kind of black SUV, whatever it might be. And we actually pay, we sacrifice, you know, mm. we go into debt, we, we give up all kinds of freedoms to pay off debt to banks and so on and a whole system that tells us this is what we should be doing and then we're trapped. We're absolutely trapped. We can't escape it. Then we have all this kind of dialogue where we think it's absolutely normal and anything else is abnormal. I mean, the parallels with the cult are unbelievable. And we've lost sight, I believe, of the fact that we are inherently kind. Humans have survived not out of dog eats dog. We've survived out of kindness and an ability to cooperate and to facilitate and enable each other and to enlarge humanity's experience. We have lost sight of that and we've lost sight of it at the most critical juncture in our evolution. And I believe that's what's happening in the world at the moment is the thing that will send us one way or the other. This is going to be the trigger, the moment where we will either rise to where we feel we should be, which is evolved into a level of kindness that's radical, or we will self-destruct you know, and that's what often happens. You know, let's say you put an organism in a petri dish and if it's there long enough, it'll eventually eat itself. But I think we feel, and maybe it's a superiority complex, I don't know, I think we feel that we humans are not here on this mortal coil to do that experience. I think we feel at spiritual level, even at a biomechanics level, we're meant to evolve to bigger not smaller. We're not meant to eat ourselves. We're not meant to destroy the planet that holds us, that we are part of, that we know we are part of. We know it. We see sunsets. We see dogs. We look into animals' eyes. We see grains of sand wash up and feel connected somehow to the rolling mechanism of the life force. We know it. We just know it. Now we have science and quantum physics and all kinds of things that can actually explain it to us in that cerebral way that we seem to trust more so than our own selves. That's fine. And this is our rally call. You know, I quote Dr. James Hollis, and I'm a massive fan of his work. He's a a Jungian psychologist from the States, and he's in his 80s now, and he's published countless works. And one of my favourite phrases is he said, our souls call us to an appointment with life, right? And if we ignore that call... It'll repeat that call and it'll become more and more violent. In, in our case, your case, you were taken to rock bottom with your addiction. My case, I went down so low, you know, with my mental, so-called mental disorder. And that was my soul. It gave me a little tap on the shoulder. Then it gave me a shove. And then it gave me an almighty boot. And I eventually heard the call. And I stepped up into life, right? 
That is what life is asking of us collectively right now. And you could see it as, oh, we've had a few little reminders. We've had some oil spills. We've had some biodiversity loss. Oh, and what do you know? Some of the cutest animals in the picture books, they're becoming extinct. Giraffes, koalas. We're starting to see it all. And then we get the bushfires. And then we get this incredible pandemic that takes us to our edge. It's life driving our, you know, it's like our souls, our collective souls dragging us to the edge and going, guys, this is it. Are you going to rise? Are you going to, and I call it kamikaze mode, are you going to go into kamikaze mode and just make this happen? Because humans have got a history of making magic happen when we care enough about it, when we're taken to the edge like that, when our souls take us to that edge. And World War II is a prime example. Like I said, we were able to do Herculean things as a culture. And then you hear those stories of 50-kilo mums lifting cars off their toddlers, like absolutely impossible except that it's happened. And I use the example of a football game. How many sporting games have happened throughout history where in the final three and a half seconds this incredible thing happens and all the rules are broken, the team rallies together, again, it's kamikaze mode, and they just go, right, we're doing this thing and we don't know what happens. The crowd watches and just goes, how did that happen? I would say over 50% of the games that go down in history, I'm not a sports buff, but I know enough about it from hearing it. I live in Australia. It's, uh, it's the predominant dialogue. How many games were literally down to the wire, to that last three and a half seconds? Something magical happens. And that's what I feel we're being taken to with the current crisis. And, yeah, yeah. so in this one wild and precious life, I walk my way to that conclusion and it crescendos, you know. The peaks get higher and then in in the final chapter... I arrive at what I feel is that simple, you know, that simple perspective. I really hope people pick up the book and dig into it. It is the journey of our times and it is one of the many journeys. And I, you know, I find it interesting that so many of these sorts of books are coming out because they are the reflection of the, the society going, hang on, hey, hang on, we've got to, you know, um, kind of interesting that you also went back to Bradbury and Huxley mm-hmm. and Atwood and you and I are not alone. There's just like, it's really interesting that as a subconscious kind of reflection back on fiction, reading Brave New World, reading Fahrenheit 51, reading uh, Handmaid's Tale, the first one, the second one was actually also really good. Mm. You know, that we as a culture are going, whoa, hang, hang. Okay, yeah. so we've known. Yeah. Huxley knew. We know the story. And, and thankfully, it, it was Orwellian or it was, it was Huxley. We're in Huxley. That's where we are. We're in Brave New World. Yeah. We're in Soma. My scrolling is my Soma. That's yep. what it is. Yep. My, it is taking me away from everything that is bad. That is, ex- If you haven't read Brave New World from all is Huxley, get on it. But even Albert Camus, The Plague. The Plague. <laughs> I mean, I, I read that at the beginning of all of this and I was like, oh, my God. It's fiction, but it's essentially yeah. COVID-19 yeah. Planted, I think, into the 1920s, I think it is. Actually, no, it wasn't. It was the 1940s. It was a metaphor for Nazism. But, yeah, we know this storyline. Yeah. We we, we pretend to be surprised, but we kind of know. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like the example you used of the person who gets angry at vegans, right? It's like we are upset and railing and angry and going, this is unfair, we're most angry because we know it. We've seen it coming, yeah. you know? There really is nothing new about it. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Stoicism and part of my morning thing is I, I, I read some Stoics 
This shit's thousands of years old. Oh. Like the way that humans are going to react to things has been the way we've reacted yeah. to things since we invented farming. Okay, there's really nothing oh, new. It, yeah, it's, it all started ten thousand years ago with the invention of the the plow. So says Harari, yeah. right? But and I, I really kind of resonate with that. But I hope that anyone listening, my favourite hike in the book is the one that I do in Switzerland, following the footsteps of Heidi. The fictional character, you know, she's suffering from the perils of industrialization, And so it's an anti-capitalist book written in the late 1880s. And she's sent off to the mountains, right, as the salve to go and, you know, walk around the mountains with her grandfather. And there's so much symbolism and it was all about everybody was railing at the time against industrialization and the capitalist model, which, you know, took off hugely in the late 1800s. What do you know, exactly that year over the mountain range, literally only a couple of hours hiking, Nietzsche was doing exactly the same thing. And so I used this hike to actually show how neoliberalism has failed us and we were discussing exactly the same stuff we're talking today back in the 1880s. And if you can go back and actually I pull apart Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I break it down. Basically Nietzsche predicts the coming of the green smoothie drinking wellness warrior who wears a T-shirt saying there is no planet B while drinking a coffee out of a takeaway coffee cup, you know, in her leggings made of microplastics. Like literally he predicts the entire thing almost word for word. It's uncanny. So I find comfort in that. I don't know if you do too, but I find comfort in the fact that there is legacy. We have experienced this pain before and it is, again, our souls are just sending louder messages. And the ultimate challenge we face is are we going to rise and turn up to our appointment? Are we going to join life rather than continue to fight it? Are we going to settle into the flow? Like going to the edge seems scary, but once you actually take that leap and you, you head out there and the air's sharper, the view is clearer, it's actually you are held. You are held more so than when you were gripping onto the trunk. When you go out to the outer limb, you are held by not just the tree, you are held by life because you've entered the flow. And I'm, I'm sounding particularly woo-woo, but I hope that those of you who are listening, you know, kind of feel what I'm trying to say. And, of course, throughout the book, as you know, I bring in scientific evidence. There is a vast amount of resource and reference, which I do adore because, I, frankly, am I, there's not enough time to not go and delve into things that aren't backed up by research yes and all the links for those of you, you i don't know if you know this but i don't put the footnotes in the book i put them on line so that and helpfully put all the hyperlinks in to all the articles yeah. the books the reviews the new york times op-eds yeah. the guardian op-eds so that you can go straight to it so they exist online rather than in my book Look at you with your references. Your law degree was worth it. I know, I know, I know. Exactly. You, you did pay attention in first year. Well, yeah, that's right. So there is a there is a very powerful thing that you discuss, and I, it's not going to give away the ending because it is fucking overwhelming, and it's just too much. And sometimes you're like, I really, I mean, like right now, I'm not allowed to leave the house, but sometimes you're like, I just can't fucking. I want to look at pictures of rock wheelers on my phone for an hour. <laughs> that's all I want to do. Yeah. And you know, I'm a firm believer that language dictates thought it's a it's a very Chomsky-ish thing yeah. to think about but there are I'm not going to make it off the top of my head but there are there are it's not true but there's like there is a particular culture that doesn't have the word mine yeah so you know there's something like yeah. that where so their entire existence is like no everyone's everything everything's everybody's 
Yeah. And that they just don't think about anything different because there is no particular word that's mine. That's not real, but it's something like that. Yeah. Anyway, you talk about repurposing the word and. Mm. And I would love you to give us a, a thing that we can use here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and how we can take the word and and use that to go out and face this. I mean, fuck, you talk about, you know, the same to have the kind of black swan situation in the book. There was a, we're in August and there was a windstorm so strong last night in Melbourne. Three people died. Yeah. It blew over trees. Three people died and it killed a four-year-old boy, including that. Like, that's not fucking supposed to happen. No. All right? But this is the weather we're facing. It's not like this is climate change. It's happening right fucking now. Mm-hmm. It's so scary. It's terrifying. The elephant in the room is sitting on our lap staring at us. <laughs> yep. Dude. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me about how we can use the word and to get out the fucking door. Yeah. So, look, you can be caught in a shit sandwich and you can have a good life. And I actually bring this up in First We Make the Beast Beautiful. You can have an anxious disorder and you can have the most rich, joyous, fulfilling life. So that's how I work. I think we use but way too often or therefore I can't dot, dot, dot. I'm anxious, therefore I can't. And I'm like, I'm anxious and it's going to be my superpower. So in the case of the overwhelm that we're feeling of being basically bombed by black swans in all directions, we can be in a state of overwhelm and fear and grief and anger and we can do something about it and we can fight and we can refuse to go and curl up in a corner with the remote control and our Twitter feed and our takeaway pizza and our emoticons that avoid contact. We can be in pain. We can see a world that is adjusting and shifting in ways that we never thought would happen, and we can fight it and make something more beautiful. So I bring up this, this idea of acedia, a Greek word that means this kind of listless slothfulness, and it's existed in scriptures and so on, this word, and it really sums up where we've headed to, where the neoliberal model has taken us, where all is cocooning. It's a suffocating, listless slothfulness, summed up by that Melania Trump jacket that she wore to the border to go and check out the Mexicans, which said, I just don't care. I think that was the wording on the back of the jacket at the time. That's acedia. And that and kind of concept that you raised, it's an interesting one to pick up on. I wouldn't have thought that anyone would pick up on that. But we have to fight that. We can be overwhelmed, da 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 or we can slip into a sedia, or we can be overwhelmed, overwhelmed, and we fight, we rise, we get big, we be noble, we become adults, we turn up to our appointments with life, we start where we need to start and we keep going. We put one foot in front of the other and just keep walking forward into our life, back into our life. We can own this shit. We can be distraught and upset, despairing, worried for our children, and we can step into a life that we probably didn't even think was possible. Yeah. Sarah Wilson, you are an absolute gem. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This one wild and precious life, go and get it. Go and get First You Make the Beast Beautiful. Go and do all of the I Quit Sugar. Just go and get on it. Go and smile at somebody that you haven't seen for many, many years. Reconnect with them if you ignored them out of fear 17 years ago. (laughs) Can you imagine the chats we could have had over these years? Well, that's the thing. Not being so scared, yeah. That's the thing, but you know as well as I do that 
the thing that my head was creating was far more terrifying than mm, the reality. But back then I wasn't well enough to know. And, um, you know, you I certainly didn't. Surviving. Hadn't done all the work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it is in, and I use the analogy all the time, you don't accidentally get on the cover of Men's Health magazine with a six-pack, and I've done it. Mm. It takes fucking work. Yeah. And if you want to keep that six-pack, you got to keep working. Mm. you got to work every day. you also got to hard. work not to be attached to that image of yourself as well, which I'm sure oh, you're no, aware no, of. I, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, I don't have a six-pack right now. <laughs> but anyone that's done any kind of aerobic fitness, you know that if you don't do yeah. it for a couple of weeks, you go on holiday or whatever, the first time you get I've got the trouble, you're like, this is the worst I fucking hate running. But then give it a couple of days and you're back on, all right? Yeah. Similarly with mental health, it just takes that every day. Mm-hmm. You just got to do it every day and you keep fit. And there's this modulation as well. There's this vigilance and then yeah. you've got to switch gears to softening, vigilance, softening, mm. vigilance, softening because my approach is not to go hard slog with all these sort of stoic-like life hacks because I just don't think, you know, I've got this thing where if I see a wet paint, do not touch. All I want to do is touch it. So if we have too many rules, we'll rebel. So there's got to be this sort of pulsing backwards and forwards between vigilance mm. and softening. You know, that's that's how growth happens. I, I I'm not a fan of hacks. Hack, hacks just chop down trees. I know. No, no, no. There's habitual practice. <laughs> that's, that's and it's it. working it out for yourself <laughs> as well. So I read yeah. all these things. I read the Daily Stoic. I've read all these different books over the years. And you've got to have a critical mind. And you get the critical mind yeah. from reading these things because that's one of the benefits yeah. is they teach you critical thinking. And then you actually Important. apply it back to the text and you go, actually, there's only about 10% of that that I think is valid and I'll do it my own way. Just like with meditation, I, you may have heard me say before, I'm a really shit-ass meditator, but I kind of like it because the more that I struggle with it and grapple with it, the more I practice that ever onwards coming back to my match or coming back to my breath. But that's it. The struggle but is that's what, what meditation is. The misconception is that meditation is quiet, I have no bother in my mind. Mm. That's not it. Mm. Meditation, to use the weightlifting analogy, meditation is the part where you hold the weight in your hand and you do the bicep curl. The lifting of the weight is taking your brain from, oh, I've got to put it on the grocery list. Oh, fuck, I wonder if I did that thing. Oh, hang on, here I am. That lifting is the thing that strengthens the brain. It's not the silence. It's the taking your back. But it's also the vigilance of coming back. It's that mental muscle. All right, my yes. mind wandered, bring it back. Now, if you're in a state of ascetic zen, right, and you just go into this kind of dropout zone when you meditate, you don't actually practice that coming back so that when you go and enter into real life where ultimately that's what meditation should be about is preparing you for the rest of life so that you can go out and be of service mm. to other humans, you don't have that mental muscle that you've been practicing for 20 minutes in your wrestle with yourself and your attention. You know, you've got to do the wrestle to get the muscles. Yeah. Yeah. Super important. Sarah, you're a gem. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I loved it. Enjoy your day, whatever it is you choose to do. Yeah. Um, I'm going off for an ocean swim. Oh, God. Sorry. Sorry. That's fine. (laughs) Um, Look, I'm doing what I can to protect my family, my community, and people that I will never meet. And you're maxing it. It's all an interesting experience. This is all I I can do. And, yes, they may have been around since the Spanish flu, but masks work. And that's why we use them. I am with you, and why would you fight it? It's not that difficult. Anyway. Yeah. All right. It's good to see you, Sarah. Have a good one, love. Thanks for it. That was Sarah Wilson. You can find out more about her at sarahwilson.com. The book is This One Wild and Precious Life. Uh, Her previous book, 
Awkward Sugar, and of course, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which is a magnificent book about anxiety, which I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend. SarahWilson.com for everything you want to find out about Sarah because she does um, very, very good work. I'm so grateful she got to come on the show today. That was really cool. Look after yourself. Thanks for all the support on The Masked Singer. It's a great fun show. It's a great ointment for these times. I'm bloody so proud of it. I'm so, I want to cry. I'm just so proud of how great our team has been doing and how hard we've been working in the middle of all this chaos that's been going on with our, our production. But it's freaking cool, man. I hope you enjoy it tonight and tomorrow night. Thank you, train station nearby. Look after yourself. Uh, if you want to find me uh, through the week, you can always get me on Instagram and I'm on Twitch like nearly every day. So if you want to come and have a chat, a bit of a Q&A, we can connect. I'm literally live on a camera just talking to people and it'd be lovely to have you along. Twitch.tv slash Yoshi Ginsburg. It'd be great. If you go there and follow me or subscribe, it'll let you know when I'm on. All right, legends, uh, until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.